Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament prophet of Micah. Thinking Micah, I know Micah. It's right after Jonah, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. What's after that? Nahum? Those minor prophets. Now, the ladies who come on Thursdays to the Thursday morning Bible study, they're very familiar with these. We've been uh, pounding through the minor prophets, or the minor prophets have been pounding on us as we go through them. And um, so often you see the same type of message. And then we're going to go into a little bit of the history so you know, you understand when we get to the place that, that I really want to go, you understand why we had to have a little bit of a history lesson here uh, dealing with the times. Uh, so before we do anything else, let's pray. Lord, come upon us today. Open our eyes to this wonderful word that we might understand exactly what it is that you were doing and then and what you're doing now and what you are calling us to do in this world today. Bring your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start, we'll, we'll get to the passage I want to get to. We're going to start in chapter 3 of Micah. So that's, uh, if you're there, you'll want to open to that and that's where we'll begin. And I'll just read it as we get to those points. Now, Micah, like most prophets of his day, was burdened with the same, same kind of uh, problem that, that all the, the minor prophets had. You had Israel's sin and you had God's judgment. Okay? Israel that had been the, just had understood the blessings of the Lord in so many ways, slowly, as we see, chased after other gods. And the Lord's judgment was going to come upon them. Now, Micah is writing in the 8th century B.C., that is in the 700s, uh, and that is right around the time that the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. And then that was what year that the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom? 722. Very good. Okay. We always have a quiz on Thursday mornings on, on dates. Okay. And I always ask the same questions. Uh, give me two dates, 722 and... Five, eight, that's right. And you're not even at the study. That's good. You're good, all right? But those, that's the fall of the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom. Okay? So Micah is writing, same time as Isaiah was writing, uh, in the 700s when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. The, Syrians were, the Assyrians were bad news. Okay? They were the power of the day, and they were greatly feared, and most people feared them. They, they had a, a reputation for people that they conquered, they loved to skin them alive, okay? And that was one of the things that they were known for. So these are nasty people, particularly violent. Now, the king Ahaz, he kind of made a little, little pack with the Assyrians, uh, and everything was good. He was king of the southern kingdom, so everything was good. They weren't bothering him. And then along comes his son, Hezekiah. Hezekiah wants to be faithful to the Lord, so he kind of uh, rebels against the Assyrians, and he's down in Jerusalem, and the Assyrians really get mad, and they're going to make their way down and capture Jerusalem. So off they come, and they destroy portions of the southern kingdom until they get to Jerusalem. And they surround Jerusalem, and in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we find this little place where the king 
comes and says to the Lord, Lord, you must protect us. I have tried to be faithful, tried to seek after you, and now here is this vast army. Won't you do something? And the prophet comes and says, watch what the Lord will do. And in 2 Kings 18 and 19, during the night, the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 Assyrians. And the Assyrians just don't come back for many, many years after that. It was the Lord that did the protecting. So this is kind of the... the, um, the context in which Micah is writing. And you can understand then the mindset of the people. The mindset of the people. We are God's chosen people. Okay? Look what he did. Look how he protected us. Okay? Those people in the north, they got what they deserved. The Assyrians came and beat the stuffing out of them. But when they came to Jerusalem, what happened? God intervened. And we are safe. But in reality... They weren't safe because they were sliding more and more into idolatry. More and more into the things that the Lord did not want them to be involved with. They had become corrupt, and particularly at three levels. One, their leadership. Their leadership was not godly. Second, their judges. Their judges were not being just. And third, their priests. Their priests were not doing what the priests were supposed to do. In fact, the priest, when you would bring your sacrifice, the priest was in extent, was in reality kind of extorting. They, they wanted you to bring more, to give them a cut. So the priests were lining their pockets. It would be almost as if I went around with the offering plate and looked at you as you gave in the offering and said, that's it. Okay, The Lord's not going to bless you. You better kick in some more. In fact, give it cash. Okay, And then it would go in my pocket. And then I'd go to the next person. That's kind of what they were doing at the time. And the judges, the judges were not being just. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, the judges were given this great opportunity to judge according to the law of God. But what would happen is the rich would come in and basically bribe the judges. And they would bring charges against those who were not bribing the judges. And so the judge would side with the rich. And not just with the rich, but with the rich against the poor. The poor who were oppressed, the poor who had nothing. In fact, it was to such an extent that we could equate it today with Bill Gates suing uh, a man who lives under the bridge in a cardboard box and the judge siding with Bill Gates and then awarding Bill Gates the cardboard box. Okay, it was that bad. Okay, it was that bad. And then, of course, the leaders. The leaders who were there to lead the nation in godliness, to lead them in righteousness, They were just taking their position and feathering their own nest and enjoying the fruits of whatever they could skim off the top. So this is the state of the nation that thinks they are in good with the Lord. Okay, Now understand that. They think they are forever protected because they are the chosen people of God no matter what they do. No matter what they do. So we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And this is what Micah says, the Lord says to Micah to the people. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Don't you know justice? You've been blessed in all these ways. Don't you know justice? And then he flips it and says, you who hate good and love evil. Oh, those are nasty words, aren't they? You who hate the good and love the evil. Now, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, basically about the same types of things. That in the end times, and 
since the ascension of Christ, we have been in the end times because Christ is going to return when? Soon, okay? It's been soon for 2,000 years. It might be another 2,000, but it's soon, okay? Imminent. And Paul writes, in those days, those last days, men will become lovers of self. They will become lovers of what is evil, haters of what is good. Haters of what is good. Now, this type of change usually comes rather slowly upon a nation. You just don't get up one day and look at what you have done for the last 500 years and say, you know what, that's wrong now. What we always said was good and what we always said was right, I think, is now wrong. And now we're just going to change the law and everybody's going to go over here and everybody changes their mind in an instant. Right? That's not usually the way it works. Usually the way it works is the same way that you, uh, uh, what, eat an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you boil a frog? You throw them in the pot and raise it very slowly. These changes come over time. And then all of a sudden, we look around, and how is it that what used to be good is now said to be evil, and what used to be evil is now said to be good? How did we get to a place like that? Well, it comes over time. It comes over time. Israel didn't one day just toss aside the God who had seen them through the desert, who had stopped the flow of the Jordan so they could cross into the promised land, who delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians. They slid into paganism and worship uh, of, of idols over a period of time. Things like this came along. They intermarried with non-believers. They intermarried with pagans. Then they let those pagans raise their children outside of the faith so that another generation was coming up who looked upon the promises of God and, and being chosen people as simply another one of the religions that were out there in the world. They built a temple in the north and put priests in there who weren't Levites and said, this is real worship, stay here and worship, don't go down to Jerusalem. And that was false worship, but people thought that that was the way to go, that that was true. They didn't one day just all go out and sacrifice their first, firstborn males to Baal in an effort to get a more children and a better harvest. That came in slowly. They have to understand that, that mindset. There were people at that time who said, you know, and, and I always do this. How many of you are firstborn males in your families? You all have been sacrificed, okay? <laughs> As an infant, you would have been taken, taken to this God Baal with his arms out like this, and there's a big fire roaring here, and you'd have been taken. They'd had a little ceremony, and they would have either cut your neck or tossed you right into the fire. Okay, why did they do that? Because they were convinced that if they took the firstborn male and sacrificed him to Baal, then they would be guaranteed more children and a better harvest. Let's kill our firstborn so that we can have more. This doesn't make much sense. This doesn't make much sense. They completely put aside the teachings of God over a generation or two or three or four. These things came to be the norm. They became haters of the good and lovers of evil. Now, how does this happen in a society? How does this happen in a modern-day society? How about that? Well, we know we've been in the last days. Let's take just a a quick little look. We'll go back uh, 2,000 years to the Romans, okay? Now, understand in the Roman world, uh, ladies, I'm just sorry to say you weren't worth that much, okay? It was men, 
We had all the power. We had all the authority in the Roman world. In fact, um, there's a, I'm reading a book about the rise of Christianity and the factors that came into that right now. And here's a letter from a Roman centurion who's away from his home, and he writes back to his wife. Okay? And she's, you know, he's, he's excited about coming home to see his son. Okay? Now, she's going to have another child. So that's the context of this letter. And he writes, If the child that you are about to give birth to is a girl, then you should put it away, for you know that is what is best. You know that is what is best. Often the Romans, if it was a girl child, would leave that child out on the doorstep, exposed to the elements, trusting that someone would come by and care for it. But in reality, nobody came by because they all wanted male children. Okay? They all wanted male children. We see this in other societies as well, don't we? See this in the world today. We think, well, how could this happen? But it's already happening. We see selective abortions even. Okay? Now, I don't doubt that sooner or later we'll have genetic engineering, and you can go down to the little uh, genetic engineering place, and they'll say, well, what do you want? They say, well, we want a male child. I carry on the name. Okay, I want another Jenkins child. I, I've got a male dog. I, he's he's going to carry on my name, okay? Uh, but, I, you know, we want a male child. And you go, okay, and you they'll do the test and mix the little brew, and you'll have a male child, okay? And the Romans, because they wanted so many male children, they ran out of women, Basically, okay, they ran out of women. Same thing that they're facing in the nation of China today. Okay, they're running out of women. Usually, it runs about uh, 53 to 47% women over men. Okay, in the natural balance, that allows for for certain things. Uh, When you change that balance, you have a decline in the population. That's what was happening there. What about in modern day world, in the modern day world? We have individuals like Peter, Peter Sanger, who's an ethics professor at Princeton. About 15 years ago, he wrote a paper. The paper said, basically, it's a long paper. You can dig it up on the Internet, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Basically, it said it was an issue to determine when someone becomes a human being, when someone becomes a human being. And he argued that it wasn't until they were well into their toddler stage, maybe three, four, even five years old, before we could actually value them as a real person. Now, this is an ethics professor. When the paper came out, it was kind of sloughed off like, well, that's just kind of the ivory tower academia. You know, he's saying that just to stir the pot a little bit. Fifteen years later, we actually find people in our present government who are writing similar papers that have written similar papers with a view towards children as disposable, okay? Gee, we, we love the evil. We hate the good. See, things begin to change slowly, slowly. Another example for today, I've said this a couple times, that there is within the academic world a circulating view that Christianity is no longer simply irrelevant in the atheistic mindset. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. Richard Dawkins, who is one of these leading voices, is a professor at Oxford University, and he said that no professor that they hire should be allowed to hold Christian views because they're dangerous. And then he went on and and said, in fact, we should not let in any students into Oxford who hold Christian views because they're dangerous. They should be kept out of academia, public service, should be treated in the same way that a doctor treats a virus. How does a doctor treat a virus? He gets rid of it. 
Now, if we said we need to get rid of a certain segment of the population, what do you think they would do? Okay? There might be rioting. There might be great disruptions in society. When was the last time you saw a group of Presbyterians out in the street rioting? Okay? When was the last time we were turning over cars and trash bins and had fire in the streets? You know, or the Methodists, the Methodists, or the Baptists, you know, or the Pentecostals. They don't riot. Okay? They jump up and down. You know. We don't do that. But when was the last time that you saw a group whose core beliefs, whose very existence could be questioned, not respond violently? Respond violently. That's the way Christians are. We don't go out and riot. In fact, who riots? It's the atheists. It's the people who stand against God. It is the lovers of what is evil. They go out and riot. Okay? When was the last time you saw a Presbyterian strap on explosives and blow themselves up on a bus full of women and children? I've not seen it. Not, we're not perfect. Okay? We're not perfect. Understand that. But we kind of understand that we are to love the good. And what is the good? It's what the Lord says is good. And hate what is evil. What is evil? It's what the Lord says is evil. Chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord brings judgment, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. There's going to come a time in this world here that Micah is saying that people will suddenly realize that the judgment of the Lord is upon them and that we need to stop and maybe repent. And what's the Lord going to say? Uh, I'm not listening to you anymore. Okay, I'm not listening to you anymore. Now, there are other times within the minor prophets in particular where there is held out a little bit of hope for those who repent, a little bit of hope for those who turn away from their evil. Perhaps if you repent, the Lord will hear your voice, will hear your voice. But at this time, as Micah delivers this message and calls them, you know, basically in verse 3, he calls, you're so evil, he equates them to cannibals. That's how evil these people are. But they think they're in good with God. There will come a time when, and and in Micah's time, they're not facing destruction right now. In fact, times are pretty good in the southern kingdom right now. And Micah is saying judgment is coming. And they're going, judgment? We're God's chosen. What do you mean judgment? He says judgment is coming. And it will be terrible. And it will be brutal. And it will be awful. Okay, Rand. This is Advent. What's this have to do with Advent? I am thoroughly depressed now. I am thoroughly scared about the destruction of our society. I am thoroughly scared that, that the atheists are going to take over and that they're going to wipe us out like a virus. What's this have to do with Advent? Chapter 5. Here's the hope. In the midst of this terrible judgment that the Lord is... Communicating to Micah, and he is communicating to the southern kingdom in the midst of this. Chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. See, this is the word of hope. And it's not just a word of hope for this crowd. Although, you know, this is a prophecy that's basically 700 years yet to come. This is the prophecy that says Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Now, why does the Lord pick a small, out-of-the-way place for the king of kings to be born in? Why does he pick Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, to be anything? I mean, Bethlehem can't say, you know what, we are such a hot tourist spot that the Lord chose us to have his son born here. They couldn't say that. Bethlehem is a dust bowl. There's nothing there. But yet the Lord chose that particular spot to send his son. In the midst of the judgment of these people, in the midst of all that is going on, he says, I'm going to bring you a peace that you do not understand now or that you do not have now, that you cannot know in this world. And that peace will come in the form of the one who will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. Ruler of Israel. This is the one who will not take, make his position and usurp it and skim off the top. He will not feather his own nest by corruption. He will not use the people and use his kingship. In fact, what kind of leader will he be? He will be one who shepherds his people Israel. In fact, he will be the good shepherd who lays down his life for his people. This is the kind of ruler that the Lord will bring. In the midst of all your corruption, in the midst of all your idolatry, in the midst of everything that you're doing, the Lord says, I'm going to judge you, but I'm also going to bring the Messiah to you. And I'm going to bring in this little backwoods town. Who else came from that area? Oh, man after God's own heart. A man named David, remember? Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and says, I'm here to ordain a king. And he says, great, let me bring my sons out. And he brings the biggest one, the oldest one. And Samuel says, no. And he goes right down the list. Don't you have any more? He says, well, there's the runt out in the field tending the sheep. Bring him in. And there's David. He says, that's the man after God's own heart. That is the next king. And Jesus is simply in that line. He's the son of David. He comes, too, from Bethlehem. Now, what other little things, what other out-of-the-way things does the Lord use? He doesn't use great, powerful things. The, the king of kings does not come in riding some war horse with great fanfare. He comes born in a manger in Bethlehem in an out-of-the-way place. To fulfill the prophecy that he would come from the city of David, the house of David, through that lineage. God has used other little things too. Remember, it was David who was still a kid who went before Goliath. And he defeated Goliath. How did he defeat him? Did God make a great invention? Did God invent machine guns so that David could go out and kill Goliath? No. He goes out with the most common of instruments, a slingshot. And he kills the greatest warrior that the world had known up until that time. Paul writes in Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. See, the Lord uses these things so that we might say, I had no part in this. Okay? He says, I'm going to deliver this people. I'm going to deliver a people who belong to me, and they cannot say that they had any part of it. It will be the work of the Lord. The innkeeper couldn't say, you know what? My inn was so great. My facilities were so fantastic that the Son of God came and was born in my inn. No. He really didn't care. He was too busy. He was too full. Got in the back where the animals are. Should the Son of God be born out where the animals are? Again, the Lord using those things which are foolishness to the world. And he shames the wise in that fashion. We can't boast in our salvation. That is very clear. Because faith is a gift. Peace is the work of the Lord and it is manifest in our lives through the work of Christ. Those who deserve no peace, yet we find that peace. And peace comes only through Christ. The hymn says, A holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Let's pray. Lord, we look at this word from the prophet so many years ago, living in a corrupt society that you were going to judge, but yet you said, even in the midst of this, I will bring my son to a little out-of-the-way place in Bethlehem Ephrathah. You brought him to a people Lord, who do not deserve this grace, but yet you shower it upon us. You say, here is my son, in him you will find peace, a peace that passes all understanding. Here you will find grace, a grace that will sustain you no matter what, a grace that will remove the blot of sin that is upon us, that will break the chains that bind us to the things of this world. This grace will free us to live the life that you have for us. And Lord, you brought him to this out-of-the-way place to demonstrate that it is not the great things, nothing that we can boast, yet you will use the lowly and the weak, and you will use those things that don't amount to much in the eyes of the world to do great and wonderful things. We thank you for all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to that hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, 178. 178, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let's stand as we sing. <laughs> 